We've got another set of notes tonight. We've got 18 pages. We've got to cover some ground from last week and proceed onward. Uh, leaving off in 107 A.D., on the front page, I notice I forgot to cover this, so I put it here uh, from uh, last week, because this is fairly interesting and right on topic for what we're talking about. Ignatius, in 107, he was the leader of the Church of Antioch. He's arrested uh, under Trajan and is then taken by guards across Asia. Uh, goes through Philadelphia, Sardis, is at Smyrna, uh, and then is going to pick up the Ignatian Way and then via Appia uh, to get to Rome where he will be executed. Uh, this is recorded by other church historians. But what we have is some letters written by Ignatius on his way. And what we have on the page one is uh, him writing to the church right here at Trellis, from Smyrna, and he's writing them this advice, which deals with heresies. So in 107, you'll be able to pick up some heresies that he is warning the people of in the letters. Uh, again, these are not, not scripture, but these were written by a man who was trained by John, knew Paul, uh, and is in Antioch, where Peter had been one of the leaders. And in chapter 6, he writes, for example... He's writing to the church of Trellis from Smyrna. I therefore, yet not I, but the love of Jesus Christ, entreat you or beg you that you use Christian nourishment only and abstain from herbage of a different kind. I mean heresy. Remember what we talked about the word heresy means choice? And what he's saying right there, eat the Christian doctrine and stay away from these other choices. So again, by 107, it's clear this is Christian. And this is not. And he's confident that he can teach that. And, the, and he's confident that the people of Trellis, a town in Asia Minor that we've never heard of. We've heard of Smyrna and Ephesus, Laodicea, Philadelphia, Sardis, Troas. But these people in Trellis, in 107, he's able to tell them, uh, abstain from the herbage of a different kind. Stick with the Christian doctrine. Chapter 7, he writes, uh, Be on your guard, therefore, against such persons. If you are not puffed up and continue, and this will be the case with you if you are not puffed up or conceited and continue in imitation or intimate union with Jesus Christ our God and the bishop and the enactments of the apostles. So he's identifying three things that they've got a relationship with Jesus Christ, that they're staying in step with their bishop, assuming he's in step with the teaching and the enactments or the teachings of the apostles. Chapter 9, uh, talking about the uh, Abionites, and we'll talk about them here. This is one of the groups that was a kind of like a Jewish group. They accepted the book of Hebrews, and they accepted uh, the book of Matthew. They rejected uh, Jesus being God, but they accepted him being a man anointed by God. That's why you can handle the book of Matthew, because Matthew gives you a human genealogy of Jesus. The book of Hebrews talks about the man Jesus, but they'd have nothing to do with the apostle Paul and his writings. Nonetheless, chapter 9 says, Stop your ears, therefore, when anyone speaks to you at variance with Jesus Christ, who was a descendant of da from David and was also uh, Mary, uh, of Mary, who was uh, truly born. Oh, this would be the, I, I got these turned around. That would be the docetics, that, that Jesus only seemed to be a man. But he's saying Jesus was a uh, descendant of David, was also born of Mary, and goes on through and says that he was truly crucified. He truly died. He was truly raised again. So that he gives them that information, again, coming against the docetics. Now, chapter 10, 
would be against the Abionites. Uh, but if you, it, but if as some that are without God, that is, the unbelieving say that he only seemed to suffer, they themselves only be seeming to exist, uh, and that would mean that he, you know, as being uh, uh, just God taking on a fathom that he really was not a, a man that he just seemed to suffer. Now he's saying that they are just using playing on the word. You just they just seem to exist. As believers, so that would be the ascetics right there. Uh, chapter twelve, I salute them from Smyrna, uh, along with the churches of God. And then chapter thirteen, interesting. He says, "Remember in your prayers the church which is in Syria, which would be Antioch. Ask them to pray for them." So those are some of those uh, heresies right there that he's addressing to the church in one hundred and seven. Turn the page, and we've got a list of some of the. Uh, heresies uh, just re- because we've talked about this for quite a while i feel it'd be time to uh review this at least that first one and here i've got a picture of this right here for us to take a look at right there uh that first one is what i was referring to the ebionism and uh they they need uh the mosaic law is needed for salvation they're teaching uh they teach uh they do not agree with the apostle paul they say Jesus is the man anointed by the Spirit who became the Messiah, meaning he's not God, but he was a man. That's what these guys teach. Again, this is, would be a Christology, Christological heresy. You can break the heresies into Trinitarian heresies or Christological heresies. Uh, and again, the last point on there, they would use, the Ebionites would use the book of Matthew and the book of Hebrews because they can, they can hold that. They've got themselves the lineage of Jesus. They've got Jesus being a man, but he's merely anointed. He's not God. Uh, after that is Gnosticism. We'll get into that tonight a little bit. We're going to see the beginning of Gnosticism from Simon uh, the Magician leading into Serenthus. It's going to be a developing heresy. Uh, I wrote there, it begins in 50 AD. I think Paul and John were addressing some of the issues, and no one would have necessarily known it and called it Gnosticism, but you can see kind of coming out, uh, it's starting to form as they're trying to re-explain Christianity away from the apostolic doctrine, so Gnosticism. And a Gnostic, that, the word Gnostic, it, it means knowledge. And so they've got knowledge that is revealed to them or special secret knowledge. It's not about knowing the truth of the Word of God and renewing your mind to the, the truth, the revelation from God. It's the secret knowledge that is outside the Bible that you've got to be a special group to get to it. And we'll talk more about that. This goes on until you can see 300 A.D. And then it's still going. By that time, it gets very, very, very developed. If anything is evolving it's not the apostolic doctrine. The apostolic doctrine was there in 60 A.D., 50 A.D. It was there. The apostles left Jerusalem with the apostolic doctrine. Paul began to teach the apostolic doctrine. Uh, some would say that it, it developed. They started adding more to it. It's like a snowball kept getting bigger and bigger. It didn't. It was more defined. But what is growing like a snowball is this Gnosticism. It's going to start in some branch of trying to redefine Christianity and develop. It's going to pick up ideas from Egypt. It's going to pick up ideas from Christianity, Greek philosophy. It just keeps rolling like a snowball. But nonetheless, uh, that begins here. Uh, one of the founders is going to be Marcion, 85 to 160 A.D. Another is going to be Serenthus. Uh, but anyway, we'll, th- there's Gnosticism. 
Next is, uh, we mentioned this last week at the end, Montanism, and that comes right here in this area of Phrygia. And we'll t- we've got to spend some time in a, in a couple weeks talking about right here in this area, or probably more over this side. Uh, they were a, well, you can read right there. They were uh, named after a, their leader called Montanus, uh, and he, he was an early Pentecostal group. Uh, it spread throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, uh, the, some of the uh, early church fathers got into this and then broke away from it. Um, Tertullian would be one that was part of this, and then he rejected it and came out of it. Tertullian, one of the great apologists of the early church. He's one that says that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, it did spread throughout the Roman Empire. Montanus uh, said that he was the word of God. He was the Logos. A lot of these, these heresies are going to start taking the name. They're going to call themselves the, the Holy Spirit. They're going to call themselves the, the Logos. They're going to take these names for themselves. Uh, they're going to recreate the definitions or the terminology of, of the text of Scripture. Montanus said that he was the Word of God and claimed to have direct revelation with the Holy Spirit. They encouraged ecstatic prophesying, so they were a tongue-talking, prophesying group. Uh, they believed that sinning Christians could not be redeemed. If you're a Christian and you sin, it's over. They forbid remarriage. They had a very firm church discipline. Uh, and just for your information, they celebrated Easter on Nisan 14th on the day of Pentec- uh, Passover, uh, along with all of Asia Minor. Just interesting. That's what that group is doing. That's coming up in a week or so. We're going to talk about the Easter controversy. Uh, doceticism, uh, or docetism. Uh, Jesus was God, but not human. Jesus only appeared to be a human, and that took on that form of well. Their doceticism comes from the Greek word doceticism which means to seem and that's what you heard ignatius writing that they say that jesus only seems to be human but he says they only seem to be themselves meaning they they only seem to be christians and so he's playing on that very word in 107 at the same time uh manichaeism a guy coming out of babylon his name is manny uh, and this group a guy named augustine is going to be a manichaeist first before he becomes a christian and starts developing huge volumes of christian uh, uh, theology so uh, some people hold that against him but he he did have you know he was a great church father but he was hooked up with this cult this heresy for a while just like tertullian was a member of the montanus but nonetheless uh, manny was around 210 this is a little bit ahead of our time i'm just showing you a couple things that are coming Uh, manny lived 210 to 276 uh, he was visited as a youth by a spirit uh, that taught him truths. These truths, this is what he says. And I guess I wouldn't doubt that a spirit visited him. It would be a demon if it was. Uh, that taught him truths. These truths gave him divine knowledge, which, which liberated his insight and his understanding, and he became a Gnostic. Now, by this time, Gnosticism has gone from possibly Simon to Serinthus to... Uh, uh, oh, what would, would I just say? Uh, yeah, Marcion, Eptomanes. Uh, I mean, it just keeps rolling. And it's coming from Egypt. It's coming from Babylon. It's coming from Asia Minor. It ends up in Rome. And it just keeps rolling. So this, this Gnosticism is a, 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 a very strange monster. Uh, 
Uh, a Trinitarian heresy is coming up around 190 at the turn of the uh, 200 into the 3rd century. Uh, this is called modalist or Sabolianism. And that is where God is a single person. Now, th- listen, you say, uh, well, that's something I considered for a while. And it, it, if you think about the Trinity, well, here's what they say. God is a single person. Sounds good so far. Meaning he only appears as God, in God the Father in the Old Testament, and then stops being the Father and becomes the Son in the Gospels, and stops being the Son and becomes the Spirit in the church age. And in that idea, he, God, uh, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit never exist at the same time. He appears as a Father, morphs into the Son, and then morphs into the Spirit. So we no longer have the Father or Spirit today, or Father and Son today, we just got the Spirit. That would be modalist a modalist now again you say that's that's wrong yes that's wrong but you can see if you're trying to figure things out and i've heard it taught the very same thing you know god appears these ways in the different the old testament the gospels and the in the new testament he's appearing different ways but that doesn't mean those others are are gone uh, some modern groups i write here still hold to this they deny the trinity claim that the name of god is jesus and accuse trinitarians of having three gods uh, the Council of Antioch condemned this in 268. That's something we're heading towards. Is there eventually going to, as Christianity begins to spread out, uh, they're going to have church councils gather together and discuss these issues and come up with a statement of faith. That's where we read last week the Apostles' Creed. Eventually we'll have the Nicene Creed. And this was, again, rejected at Antioch, a Council of Antioch in 268. The next one is pa- Patripassianism. Uh, That's another Trinitarian heresy. God the Father became incarnate, suffered and died, and was resurrected. God the Father became the Son. So you got the Father, and the Father becomes the Son. Well, in the Gospels, we see the Son praying to the Father, talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. But that's what they decided right there, and that was condemned at the Council of Rome in 200 A.D. And one more Trinitarian heresy before we move on tonight. It's called adoptionism. And now you can understand that. Or it's monarchianism, uh, which is Jesus Jesus became Christ at his baptism. It's almost like a rehashing of the uh, Abianism where he was anointed by the Spirit. But Jesus became, in this idea, Jesus was adopted as the Son, was baptized. He's just a man. And the Father adopted him. And, and Jesus, or God existed in Jesus in a very powerful way. By 300, uh, monarchianism had become Arianites or Arians. And that's another story. We got Arian versus Athanasius. Arian's going to teach that Jesus was the first creation of God. And so, meaning God, Jesus had a time when he did not exist. And then God the Father created Jesus. Now, he's not a man. He's created just like God, but he is a creation. That would be Arianism. They're going to pick up this uh, monarchianism uh, that Jesus then becomes empowered by God at his baptism. Athanasius will argue at the Nicene Council. This is when Constantine shows up, 312, 325, and those time periods. And Athanasius is going to argue and almost gets defeated, almost gets defeated uh, there's, it was a touch and go. It was a debate. They had a debate. It was like, oh, this is stupid. It was kind of like, well, some people are arguing for open borders. Some people are saying we need to have borders. It's like, ah, which way is it going to go? They almost went with Arianism because God created Jesus. 
But Athanasius was the hero of the day and won the argument that no, same substance, God eternal, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, were all there in eternity past. And once you cross over and make Jesus a creation, you've entered heresy or what we call today Jehovah Witnesses would be uh, what they would teach and they think they're right. Okay, the next thing we've got here on, that's just a bunch of stuff there that's coming up that we're looking at heresies and that the church has to work through, which is understandable. This next picture, oh, there it is, there it is again. This is interesting right here because this is the next time chart that we're heading into. Uh, we've got a little bit left over here from the first century. Uh, you got Titus, Domitian, Nerva, then Trajan. Now you see Trajan's going to be the, during the days of Ignatius when he's taking that journey over there. Uh, you've got some of these people, John, Papias. You remember Papias from last week? He was a student of John. Ignatius, we just talked about him, read some of his letters or some of his writings. Polycarp, these three guys worked together in the, where they were uh, different churches, Antioch, Ephesus, and Smyrna. In Rome, you've got Linus, Anticletus, and Clement. Linus and Clement are mentioned by Paul in Scripture. And then they're followed by these guys going on into the second century. Uh, one I'd point out right here uh, is this guy named Hippolytus right here, 170. We're going to talk about him if I keep moving. I, I hope I'm not rushing too fast, but I'm looking at 18 pages of notes. Uh, Hippolytus, but also right here, Irenaeus, or Irenaeus is uh, 126 to 220. He's going to be in, in Gaul. He's going to be over there in France, writing back to the Church of Rome, and he's going to be a very uh, important individual. We'll read some of the things he wrote today. But he knew, over in Asia Minor, he knew Polycarp, and was probably familiar with Ignatius and Papias. And so he would, it goes, John, Polycarp, Irenaeus or Irenaeus uh, were like three generations or they knew each other. Irenaeus did not know John, but he knew Polycarp who did know John. Others that you see across here, Justin Martyr, one of the church uh, apologists is going to be mentioned tonight. I mentioned Tertullian, another one of the uh, apologists is living right at that time. And you see you got 80 AD, 100, 120, 140, 160, 180, 200 AD. And here's your emperors coming up here. Uh, you know the gladiator movie gladiator marcus aurelius is the emperor of that gladiator movie right there and then his wicked son takes over uh and and has the gladiator killed that's commodus uh supposedly uh and hadrian is going to have the second jewish wars uh bar Kokhba revolt is going to come after vespasian destroys jerusalem in 70 a.d and ends israel by uh, 132 A.D., they've regrouped and started a second Jewish revolt. And Hadrian has to spend three years, uh, 132 to 135, putting that revolt down, the Bar Kokhba revolt, which is, is, again, an amazing recovery by the Jews in that short of time. Uh, there's persecutions between 90 and 96 A.D. It's a brief break, and then Trajan provides some persecution. Uh, and then Hadrian will be persecuting during this time. And even sadly, Marcus Aurelius, the, he's a great philosopher. His books are, you can go to, you go to Barnes & Noble, you can buy the, the thoughts of Marcus Aurelius because he's a great philosopher. Uh, but he persecuted Christians. Now with that being said, since we mentioned that very quickly, let's go to uh, the end right here. That I'm going to go to page. We had this here last week. Go to the bottom of page 13. I got just the title cut off right there. Um, during Trajan's reign right here, and now I've got to go to, so he's ruling between 98 and 117. Pliny, 
uh, is going to write him a letter, Pliny the Younger. There's going to be these individuals in our story right now. And I hope you find this interesting. You have Pliny the Elder. Then there's going to be Pliny the Younger. That's who's going to write a letter. We've got Younger. I think it's, I'll see the number here for sure, but I think we have 247 of his letters remain. Uh, and Pliny the Younger is going to write a letter to Trajan, the emperor, uh, who is going to write him back. And uh, I just had Trajan up there. You can see what I, I'll go back here again. Trajan, right here. And while he's ruling in Rome, ruling the empire, Pliny the Younger has found himself in Bithynia as the governor of Bithynian Pontus right up in here. Now, Peter writes a letter uh, to these people. He writes to the Bithynia, Pontus, Cappadocia. Uh, he writes a letter up to these people. Uh, but of course, that would be uh, before these guys are in place. But he, this is part, these guys were founded by Peter, and he was part of them. Uh, the Black Sea's right here. But in this area is where Pliny is going to be talking about Christians and what is going on with them. So, turn the page, and there's your same map you've got right here on the board. You've got that there. And Pliny the Younger, uh, he's going to live uh, from 61 to 113 A.D. So, he'll die in 113 A.D. Uh, some things about him, his uncle was Pliny the Elder. Now, Pliny the Elder uh, helped raise and educate Pliny the Younger. Uh, he, Pliny the Elder was a naval commander in the early Roman Empire. He was friends with Vespasian, you know, the one who uh, started, was a general for Nero, started the Jewish wars. He was the author of uh, this book called, uh, translated, it would be Natural History, which is an early model of the encyclopedia. In fact, he was, in a sense, wrote the first encyclopedia uh, what we'd say of the Western world or of this time. He also wrote the history of the German wars. Uh, Pliny the Elder was, his writings were used as a source for Plutarch, Tacitus, and other Roman historians. Pliny the Elder dies in 79 AD at the city of Stabia, which is only 10 miles from Mount Vesuvius and two and a half miles from Pompeii. He dies attempting to rescue a friend and their friend's family from the Mount Vesuvius explosion. So this guy dies in 79, 79 AD trying to rescue a friend from Mount Vesuvius. And so he, he's, he's, he's gone. But he dies after having trained his, his nephew, Pliny the Younger. And that's who we're interested in. It just, it's just interesting how that, you got this background here. Uh, Pliny the Younger was educated at home. Uh, he was sent eventually to Rome to learn rhetoric. Uh, he, he became a lawyer, uh, dealt with inheritance cases. He eventually makes it to the Roman Senate, becomes a, a praetor and then a perfect, and then is placed as governor of Bithynia up here under Trajan. <clears throat> now, there's, boy, here, at the very last point right there, he was an author that wrote hundreds of letters and 247 of them we still have. And what we have is right here. I've got a copy of one of them for you right here. Um, I'm going to, how do I want to do this? I'm just going to go ahead and, and start with this letter. Go to page 17. We may come back and review it. 
But I, this would be, could become very obnoxious reading this, but I'm going to take a shot at it and see how it goes. Pliny is writing to Emperor Trajan right now. Uh, he says, It is my practice, my lord, to refer to you all matters concerning which I am in doubt. We're on page 17. So when he's in doubt, he doesn't know how to handle a situation. He just asks for guidance on this. And he doesn't know what to do with Christians who have been accused of being Christians. And they've been brought before him. It's like, okay, here's what I'm doing, but I'm not sure if this is standard protocol for where we're at in the empire because there's been times of persecution. There's been times that they weren't dealing with it. There's, and so he's, he's confused. For who can better give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? I have never participated in trials of Christians. So now we've got... Uh, Christians being on trial during this time period, say, you know, 107 to 113, right in this time period. This is, well, uh, Ignatius has gone to Rome to be eaten by animals. Now, Pliny, the younger, has got Christians on trial. So they brought him in and said, these guys are Christians. Why would I care? Or what do I do with them? I therefore do not know what offenses... It is the practice to punish or investigate, and to what extent? I mean, like, okay, you're a Christian, just don't talk about it. Or do I cut their head off right away? What, what is this? So he doesn't seem to be too, like, upset with them. Like, in 64 AD, they're accused of burning Rome, and so they're just slaughtering Christians because they burnt Rome, according to the mainstream media, and Nero. Uh, and I have been not a little hesitant as to whether there should be any distinction on account of age or no difference between the young, very young, and the more mature. In other words, if we got like a, a teenager, an old person, or we got kids, it's like, should I just be dis- discerning? Whether pardon is to be granted for repentance. Okay, if you say, okay, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll stop being a Christian. Okay, well then you can go. Or if a man has once been a Christian, it does him no good to have ceased to be one, whether the name itself, even without offenses, or only the offenses associated with the name are to be punished. Okay, are you being punished for being a Christian only, or do you got to do wicked Christian things, and whatever are those wicked Christian things? Meanwhile, in the case of those who are denounced to, to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. Here's what he does. I interrogate these as to whether they were Christians. Are you a Christian? Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and third time. In other words, if they say they're a Christian, okay, think about it. I'm going to have to take action. Are you sure you're a Christian? He's giving, okay, it's like, okay. Now this could get very difficult. You see what's happened to the other Christians? Have you thought about it? Are you still a Christian or are you a Christian? So three times, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. Now we are punishing Christians here in Bithynia at this time. Are you a Christian? Yes, I am. I don't like that attitude. So I'm going to punish you. Just It's like, but we are punishing, we're killing Christians. Does that leave an impact no it doesn't i'm still a christian well then what he's telling trade is like that obstinacy that they deserve to be killed just because they're not like backing down it's like i'm telling you back down i'm not gonna it's like being in school saying sit down no 
you know, and I'll, I'll make me sit down. It's like, oh, you know, whatever. Okay, so, I mean, it's really not that big of a deal. There were others possessed of the same folly, uh, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. So now you find out there's two groups. There's those, the underclass or the non-citizens, which if they're Christians, I'll take care of that here. I'll execute them here. But if they're Christians, just like Paul was a Christian, uh, he said, and I appeal, to, I appeal to Caesar. Well, I've got a ship, just like Ignatius, goes all the way from Syria all the way to Rome because he would be a Roman citizen. Paul went to Rome because he's a Roman citizen. If they're in Bithynia right now and they're slaves or non-citizens and you're a Christian, you're lower class, we'll just kill you. But if they're a citizen, well, that complicates things. I'm going to have to put you on a cart and take you to Rome for you to stand trial in Rome. Soon, soon accusations spread, as usual, usually happens because of the proceedings going on, and several incidences occurred. In other words, once they find out they're killing Christians, well, your neighbor, you know, he's putting a fence up on my side of the yard, so guess what? That guy's a Christian. Okay, now, now people are just accusing each other of being Christians because they realize that we're all doing something about it. We're following up on it. An anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons, those who denied that they were or had been Christians when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me, offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, Trajan's image, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose together with statues of the gods, and moreover, curse Christ, none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do. These, I thought, should be discharged. So if they were accused, they brought them in. Uh, got a list of you guys being here. Your neighbor says, uh, you're a Christian. Are you a Christian? No, I'm not a Christian. Well, okay. Well, then what I'm going to have to have you do if you're not a Christian, I'm going to have to have you pray to the gods just like this. And I gave them the confession of the words. You're going to have to burn some incense and wine to the image of Trajan. I, I brought... I brought an image of you in there. So we've got a statue of you right in here. And uh, they go up, they pour a little wine out, burn a little incense in your honor, Caesar worship. And then they curse Christ, say something renouncing Christ, something bad. He says, which I have heard, if you're a true Christian, you won't do any of those things. You won't burn incense to an image of the emperor. You won't curse Christ. And uh, you won't deny being a Christian. So he says, I figured they're, they're good to go. So I let them go. Someone says they're a Christian. They say they're not. It's your word against their word. They've cursed Christ, so I'm not worried about it. But it's interesting that it was identified that the Christians would not take that kind of a step and say those things. Others named by the informer declared that they were Christians, but then denied it after they saw some heads where they says, but then denied it, probably after they saw people getting killed, asserting that they had been, but they had ceased to be. Some three years before, others many years, some as much as 25 years so he said, I used to be, and that would put them back during the, almost the days of Peter. When Peter was writing them a letter saying, uh, you're going to face hardships, staying strong, they would have received those letters, and then by this time now, they've renounced their faith. If, if you know, if that's the time system. They all worshiped your image and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ. They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day. Now, here is interesting information. I've got it underlined. Those that had renounced says, well, here's, here's what we used to do. I got in this group, and here's what we would do. We would meet for coffee 
on Saturday mornings in a prayer group, and it just kind of kept going. I, I'm sorry I was going. Now, that's not quite what they say. But here's what this, now this describes an, a church service from this time period, that right around 100, 113 A.D. in Bithynia. They were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn, probably Sunday. Again, it just says a fixed day. And sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. They would sing as if they were singing to a God. They would sing together. One would sing one part, then someone else would sing another part. They'd sing it back, and they didn't have hymnals. Turn the page of your hymnal or you know, sing the chorus on the PowerPoint presentation 30 times. They would sing, you know, one line, and then someone else would sing, the, or the group would sing a line, then the leader would sing a line, and they'd just be a responsive singing. Nonetheless, they do this in the morning, and to bind themselves by oath not to, to, not to some crime. In other words, they'd bind oaths, we will not commit crimes, we will live decent lives, we'll be honorable, they're, they're taking their, you know, we're, we'll have the fruit of the Spirit. But not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, not to refuse to return a trust, in other words, pay your bills, when called upon to do so. In other words, basically they're taking an oath that we will be good people, we will be good citizens, uh, naming the nature of God as their target. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. In other words, there are some people, read, if we keep moving, we're going to get to where Simon's got people that they're eating human flesh and stuff like this. These guys are just eating like innocent food. They just get together and have, have a meal. Even this, they affirmed, they had ceased to do after my edict. In other words, he said it's illegal. By which, in accordance with your instructions, I had forbidden political associations. Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. So I got a hold of these two slave girls, and they are like, what are you? Well, I'm a deaconess in the church, or whatever they said they called them. And he tortured them to find out more details about what's going on in these meetings. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, ex excessive superstition. He says, just depraved, excessive, super, meaning they would pray, they'd expect miracles, and they got all these things that they believe in. It's just a bunch of superstition. But it's interesting that these people are not, if they're, they're true, they're not renouncing Christ, and they're willing to face persecution. And this poor guy, Pliny the Younger, who's been trained in Rome by Pliny the Elder, who's written encyclopedias on nature and fought in the naval for the Romans, he's trying to figure out what... What are these people, is this wrong? I, it, it just seems like superstition and they're dying for it. Okay. Uh, I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you. In other words, this just doesn't add up to me. I, I'm, I'm going to be killing people for singing songs and eating a meal in the morning. Uh, why is this wrong? Except they're obstinate. <laughs> they're bullheaded. They won't change their mind. I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you, for the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. It's not just a few people. I mean, I'm going to be spending my whole, this whole year finding Christians. For many persons of every age, every rank, that means there's some elite, 
and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. Meaning we're going to be taking on some of our council members, some of our business owners, some of our military, including the slaves, the under, underclass. It's like we're going to be taking out a chunk of people with this edict. For the, conta- for the contagion of the super, this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. We're going to be like having traveling teams going out and looking in the villages for more of these people who are simply singing songs to this Jesus who they think is a God and then having food. But it seems possible to check and cure it. Meaning, I think I can do this. If we want me to just kill a bunch of people, I think I can stop this Christianity stuff. It is certainly quite clear that the temples, which had been almost deserted, have begun to be frequented, and the established religious rites long neglected are being resumed, and that from everywhere sacrificial animals are coming, for which until now very few purchases could be found. Hence, it is easy to imagine what a multitude of people can be reformed if an opportunity for repentance is afforded. In other words, once uh, the, the temples had dried up, the sacrifice of the gods had stopped, but once we brought this edict out that we're going to start killing Christians, guess what? People are starting to show up in the temples again. Uh, they're offering sacrifices. So I think if I just keep putting pressure on this, we can, re- we can restore this pagan worship, and your image uh, will be honored. And we can stamp out this Christianity. And again, you can see he's kind of like, he's, you can see he's sta- stating facts, but he's not really committed to the program. And, and, and the very reason Pliny's writing Trajan is like, how far do I push this? Okay, and we've got, we've got the answer. We've got the answer. I spelled this wrong. We've got the answer. Trajan's letter is with this, his response, which is, unbelievable 2000 year correspondent it's like tapping into somebody's email he says you observe proper procedure my dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those who had been denounced to you as christians for it is not possible laid down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard they are not to be sought out do not see don't don't form a military squad going from village to village and seek these guys out if they are denounced and proven guilty, they are to be punished with this reservation, that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, you know, renouncing Christ, cursing Christ, burning incense to my image, he would say, Trajan would say, and really proves it, that is, by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through, through repentance. You can repent of being a Christian and we'll let you go. But anonymously posted accusations ought to have no place in any prosecution. If someone posts a list on a poll somewhere, these are a bunch of Christians you ought to go get, throw it away. We're not going to go after people that are anonymously accused of being criminals. For this is both a dangerous kind of precedent and out of keeping with the spirit of our age. In other words, they, they, he was even talking earlier about you can't accuse yourself. I mean, it's like, so they've got, they're trying to be very fair. You can see the integrity of this whole thing and again they're persecuting christians but you can see the integrity it's like if, if, don't just let them be accused we're, not, we're just not killing people and we're not going to go hunt them down if we don't know they're there uh why, why would we care they're not they're not doing anything so that's kind of interesting attitude taking place right there of the persecutions going on okay now go to page four of your notes 
And uh, at the top of page four, I've got this thing right there, a list, uh, the heretics. And on there is, uh, of this time period, and I'm going to try to get through this, uh, Judaizers. I don't think we need to spend any time on the Judaizers. Uh, They were the ones that were going around trying to, you know, Galatians is about that. They want people to follow the law. Salvation comes through the law of Moses. Then, amazingly, Simon Magus, uh, right out of the book of Acts, from like 30 to 60 A.D., Simon Magus, uh, again, he is possibly one of the sources of the, of the root of, uh, of Gnosticism. And again, it's in Acts. And then once we see, read Acts chapter 8, a little bit about Simon the magician, uh, the Bible never mentions him. Uh, but church historians, even Josephus mentions him. And it could be that some of the issues that they're dealing with in Galatia, in, in uh, Antioch, you know, Antioch, things they're dealing with over in Corinth may tie back to Simon. We'll see. Uh, then there's Nicholas, the Nicolaitans, which we see uh, in uh, Jude. We see in the book of Revelations, the Nicolaitans. And then finally, tonight, Serenthus, who is going to take and develop uh, Gnosticism and become a Gnostic teacher. John is going to confront him in, in the bathhouses of Ephesus. So very quickly, Judaizers, we don't need to mention any more about. But I do want to spend a little bit of time on Simon. Well, I'd like to spend some time on all these. And I'm looking at 19 minutes. So that would be six minutes apiece. All right. Stop laughing. Simon Magus, uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 24. We won't read the whole thing. Uh, but he also appears in the Gnostic texts. These texts are going to refer to Simon Magus. Uh, there's eventually going to get so much things, so many things written about Simon, the magician, that it becomes fanciful. It, it, we, we lose contact. So somewhere between the book of Acts, passing through Josephus, and a couple of the early church writers, including uh, Irenaeus, uh, we have some factual information about him, and then it starts to just drift away, and it gets spooky, but yet just talking about him is spooky. Um, in Luke, Luke records in Acts, that's why I got right there, Luke says in Acts, Simon amazed all the people of Samaria. Now this is, uh, this is right out of the Bible. He was in Samaria, and remember, Philip goes up and evangelizes Samaria, and a bunch of people believe, and then they send for John and Peter to go from Jerusalem up to Samaria because they have believed, but they haven't had hands laid on them and haven't received the Spirit yet. So Philip has got them evangelized and they're believers, but then here comes Peter and John up and they lay hands on them and they receive the Spirit and miracles begin to happen and they see the, manifest, the Spirit is manifested. Now they don't lay hands and go, well, there it was. I mean, they, you can see the Spirit come on them. I mean, that's interesting when you start talking about the Spirit. It's like, you're standing here, I don't have the Spirit, I'm born again, now I've got the Spirit. Okay, what happened? It's like, they, they could see it come. Something happened that they would visually see the Spirit come on these people. Now, day of Pentecost, they spoke in tongues. Over in uh, uh, Caesarea, uh, they spoke in tongues, uh, and, and then they were baptized. So something like that must be taking place. It's not explicit, but nonetheless, Simon's going to see it. So anyway, uh, Simon amazed all the people of Samaria before this took place. Simon was not a mere illusionist, you know, just a sleight of hand, because he used demonic power, since Luke writes this, they, the people of Samaria, paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. 
So Simon is into sorcery. Simon is using demonic powers. Simon is in line, in league, with Satan before Philip gets to Samaria. And people are amazed by it. They're watching it. Simon received attention, it says, from the least to the greatest. So you're going to have your slaves and your underclass all the way up to the magistrates, the business owners, the leaders. They all were amazed. And we got, Josephus is going to record something about that. So they were amazed at his power. Um, They say this man is, quote, the power of God that is called great. And these would, this would be like titles for the messiah this is the great manifestation that god had promised was coming again a lot of these people are jews in fact simon could himself be a jew uh simon it's amazingly acts chapter 8 verse 13 during all of this when philip's preaching simon it says luke writes believed and after being baptized he continued with philip so simon hears this message joins with philip the evangelist and follows him around and then acts chapter 8 verses 14 through 17 peter and john arrive in samaria and here it goes right here very quickly i'm going to read just those verses acts 8 14 through 17 now when simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles hands he offered them money in other words he's he's following philip he likes the teaching he's apparently believed and was baptized you know i would say he's born again uh this would say indicate that he really hadn't you know hadn't he was just like following looking for something uh but some some would say the lead there's legend some say that he believed when peter confronts him he repents and stayed and was a member of the church of 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 samaria for the rest of his life and end story but there's enough things coming out, uh, well, you'll see it, that he doesn't. But when he sees the Spirit, come on, when Peter and John laid their hands on these people, and he sees what happens, I do not know what he saw, but he sees something. Maybe they all start glowing like light bulbs or something. Uh, I don't think so. But I mean, he sees and go, wow. And he wants to be able to do that. They're doing something so magical, uh, he's never done that. And he wants to be able to have that kind of power. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. You're not even part of this ministry, because you've got the wrong attitude. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And there it is. And they pray, and and everything goes on. He goes back, and he's fine. Potentially. Now, here's what they say about Simon. It's worth mentioning because he is a character in the heretical family tree. Josephus, this is just Josephus writing. Now, again, I, you, you remember uh, after Pontius Pilate uh, left as governor, Festus became a governor, and he was there with Paul 
in Caesarea by the sea. And then Festus leaves and Felix comes in and was the governor. And they're having interaction with uh, Herod Agrippa II and his, his sister Bernice. Uh, and so Felix is now the governor or procurator of Judea. Now this is Josephus' writing. This is outside of the Bible. This is Josephus' writing. Uh, book 20, chapter 7. While Felix was the procurator of Judea, he saw this Drusilla and fell in love with her, for she did indeed exceed all other women in beauty. And he sent to her a person whose name was Simon, one of his friends. A Jew he was, and by birth a Cypriot uh, from Cyprus, and one who pretended to be a magician. Same same time, uh, right place, right name, right occupation. And endeavored to persuade her to forsake her present husband and marry him, Felix. Now, Felix and Paul had interaction. I passed around a Felix coin. Uh, you've seen that before. And promised that if she would not refuse him, he would make her a happy woman. Accordingly, she acted ill and because da 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 da. But nonetheless, Simon was hired by Felix to get some kind of a magic potion and give it to Drusilla so she would fall in love with Felix. And then the whole point there is Josephus mentions the same guy. Justin Martyr uh, reports that Simon visited Rome during the reign of Emperor Claudius. This would be Claudius who's going to be killed by Nero, uh, so that Nero or killed by Nero's mom, so Nero can be the emperor. Uh, but anyway, about that time, uh, Simon uh, arrives in Rome. There was a Samaritan, Justin Martyr writes, Simon, a, a native of the village of Gito, uh, it's, it's in, in North Israel in that area of Samaria, who in the reign of Claudius Caesar and in the royal city of Rome did mighty acts of magic by virtue of the art of the devils operating in him. He was considered a god and was a god was honored, and as a god was honored by you Romans with a statue which statue was erected on the river Tiber between the two bridges and bore the inscription in the language of the Romans, there's Latin, which means to Simon the holy God. Now this is Justin Martyr writing uh, about, the. now again, Justin Martyr is a, a, and he's writing to the Romans and trying to argue his case that Christianity is a legitimate religion and good for society and not a perversion. And he's, he's separating himself from Simon here. And then nonetheless, uh, and almost all the Samaritans and a few even of the other nations worship him, Simon. Even the Bible says he was the power of God, the great power. Uh, so they, they even, in, in the, even Luke recognizes that the Samaritans considered him a manifestation of God. Now again, when we think of God, uh, we think of the eternal being who created all things. And to look at a man and, the man and say, oh, look, there's God. It's kind of hard for us as uh, theists, as Christians, to see why would anyone say Domitian was a god? It's like, I mean, he, he died. He was a man. I mean, he, it's like, well, there was, they had different ideas of, of godhood and different levels, and so they considered him deity, and then they start, it starts developing. In fact, right here, you can see the beginning of Gnosticism right here. Uh, after it says, to Simon the holy god, it's the one, two, three, fifth ninth line down. And almost all the Samaritans and a few even of the other nations worshiped him and watch this, acknowledged him as the first God. See, now we're getting into Gnosticism. Again, we don't know it yet. 
They don't know it yet, but they're starting to create Gnosticism. And a woman, Helena, who went about with him at that time and had formerly been a prostitute, they say, is the first idea generated by him. Now, again, this is, this is early Gnosticism. Before we get into talking about Gnosticism, there's the first God, and then he's got an idea, and that idea produces another being. It's like over here, and then this being may or may not know God who created them. All of a sudden, they just find themselves out here, and now they're like, whoa, and then they start doing stuff, creating stuff, and it's, it's the beginning of Gnosticism. Um, he goes through and talks about many things here. Uh, I'm looking down here where, oh, Marcion, a man from, that, that's a good name right there, and there is Marcion, and that's, that's a Gnostic, a man from Pontus, right up here, see, Pontus, right up there where Bithynia is at, right where uh, Pliny the Younger was trying to deal with the Christians, a man of Pontus who is even at this day alive and teaching his disciples to believe in some other God, in some other God creator than the creator. So this is, this is a Justin Martyr describing Gnosticism around 150 A.D., saying Simon started it. And in fact, there's a guy teaching right now who's saying the same things, except as we see the development of their theology, it's evolved. So Justin Martyr's talking about this and how it's come up to, into his day. Okay, enough of that. Uh, Irenaeus, we've talked about Irenaeus, uh, 170. Get back our, should we get back our chart here? Maybe this might be helpful at some point. There's our chart. See, Justin Martyr right here, 100 to 165 A.D. is when he lived. That's the guy who's talking about Simon, but also talking about uh, Marcion right here, who's still alive in the, his day. And now we go to Irenaeus, who's going to write about Simon also. And I don't have it written down here. We could look it up. But Irenaeus calls Simon an antichrist and says he continued his sorcery and began the heresy of Gnosticism itself. And Irenaeus is going to attack Gnosticism extensively. And he is going to say it all began back here, you know, when, you know, 35, 40 A.D., when S Simon and Peter encountered each other, and Simon went, went off track and, and created this Gnosticism. Okay, Hippolytus, that's this guy right here, writing around 170 to 236 A.D., wrote that Simon had developed the theology that included three pairs, three pairs, the mind and the intelligence, the voice and the name, and the rationation and reflection. Hippolytus says that Simon claimed that if he were buried alive, now this is going to come up later, that if he were buried alive, he's going to end up in Rome. Remember how he comes to Rome. He's going to challenge in his lifetime. He's going to, according to traditions, he challenges Peter on different occasions. Uh, and he claims, and it's written here, I've got the notes here, again, do what you want to with it. Simon claimed that if he were buried alive, he would rise the third day, and accordingly, having ordered a trench to be dug by his disciples, he directed himself to be entered there. Then they executed the injunction given, whereas he remained in that grave until this day, for he was not the Christ. Uh, and so ends, that's the way Simon ends, um, now, even the word, uh, the greed of Simon is recalled in modern, our modern word, simony. It's S-I-M-O-N-Y, trying to get money, Use, meaning it uses religion as a means to get profit. Imagine using Christianity as a means to get profit. Uh, that practice is known as, it's named after Simon. So that is one of the 
main reasons we do not like uh well you understand we don't go into that area there <laughs> okay anyway there's a bunch i i've got right here on this nix right here i don't have all of it there's a link that's live when you get online but this is hypolitus's uh refut refutation of all heresies and it goes through and i got several pages here it's not all there but some of the bold stuff i I've, I've, i bolded some of the interesting things there about simon uh how he's like in chapter nine he's trying to explain uh moses writings and how where creation comes from and you can just see him developing the early he was uh, whoever this simon was he was a thinker actually he's imitating not a uh, uh, greek philosophy some of the philosophers uh oh i want to read some of it to it but i it would be oh my gosh i don't have six minutes for all the other guys uh, uh chapter 13 it says at the page eight chapter 13 therefore according to his this reasoning uh, Simon became confessedly a god to his silly followers, uh, begotten, no doubt, and the subject to passion when he may exist potentially but devoid. Uh, and then there at the very, on page 9, uh, that talks about right here in bold. This Simon, this is a, Simon's disciples adopt the mysteries. Simon meets St. Peter at Rome and the account of Simon's closing years. Um, this Simon, deceiving many in Samaria by his sorceries, was reproved by the apostles. See, when it says reproved by the apostles, that gives the idea that it was more than just Peter. It was John, uh, but it, it could have been Paul also. Uh, and they never mention him, and I don't want to add to the Bible, but some of the things that he's doing and saying, or they're crediting him as doing and saying, is exactly what Paul's writing against, what John's writing against. You can see this in, in 2 Corinthians uh, because S Simon is having dreams and visitations and Paul, he, Paul, when he talks about the super apostles, he may be, that Simon may be one of the super apostles that, Simon, or that Paul is mocking and making fun of because they're so far off base. And he says, they're abusing you. I mean, they're, they're trying to get money from you and you're, you're putting up with it. So uh, he's, if it's not Simon, you, it would really match the idea there. This Simon, deceiving many in Samaria by his sorceries, was reproved by the apostles and was laid under a curse as it has been written in Acts. But he afterwards abjured the faith and attempted these practices. And journeying as far as Rome, he fell in with the apostles. And to him, deceiving many by his sorceries, Peter offered repeated opposition. This man ultimately repairing, uh, repairing to and sitting under a plane tree, uh, I mean, Simon sitting in Rome under a tree, continued to give instructions in his doctrines, which again would be early, early Gnosticism. And in truth, at last, when conviction was imminent, in case he delayed longer, he stated that if he were buried alive, he would rise the third day. And there you've got that saying. That's where I cut and pasted that from right there. And then he goes on and talks about this doctrine in point of fact was the same with that of Simonian, that with Valentinus, Atinius, and others. That, and you see the different forces, the Naus, the Aletheia, the Logos, the Zoe, Anthropos. Those are all the different uh, creations that the, the, 
the God at the beginning mistakenly made. It's all Gnostic. We'll get into some of that later. And so we only got through Simon Magus. Nicholas uh, is going to be, he's uh, one of the guys that was there in the early church in Jerusalem. And he apparently is going to break out and they're going to become a very uh, 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 sinful group. Uh, antinomianism is what it's called, where you just sin. It, it, there's no limit. You just engage the flesh uh, because of, the, again, a misapplication of Christ's atoning death. It's like we've been saved. And Timothy could be, First uh, Timothy could be referring to it, or Second Timothy, where it says they think the resurrection uh, has already taken place. In other words, we're already resurrected, so we're already glorified. There's nothing we can do to sin, so just eat, drink, and be merry because... Uh, in, indulge the flesh nicholas seems to be nicolaitans seems to have gone that way we'll talk more about that obviously next week since we're still struggling here to get through material uh jesus can uh, uh, uh commends one of the churches in ephesus or in in the early uh in the, the seven churches of asia minor commends one of them and says you one thing i have in your that's in your favor is you hate the practices of the nicolaitans of which he says i also hate so these guys were active if we make the if nicholas was the connection or not there is a group called in the scriptures the nicolaitans that jesus says he hates and they are a heretical group and it all you know if you let church history and all the connecting writings come together it goes right back to this individual who is teaching people antinomianism uh and you can see it just be a twisting of the gospel message and then serinthus this is the one who comes and develops from pontus uh he develops gnosticism i mean he's not his gnosticism is not the gnosticism of 200 300 a.d it's going to keep developing and he's going to be encountered by john john is definitely going to have an encounter with serenthus so these two guys were still in heresies the nicolaitans and serenthus are still being addressed individually as people and groups in the text of scripture uh before we close the scripture so those are two we want to talk about and again we could go through and make application and see these things happening you know, in our midst today at some level. I'll pray and we're done uh, for tonight. We'll come back next week and make some more progress. Father, we thank you for the chance to look into these things. We do ask that we would guard our hearts, that we would again allow the truth of the word of God to feed our souls, that we would not be entertained by the deceitful things of Satan and the, and the things of this world that lead us astray, but that we continue to grow in our faith, that will be powerful and effective to change us into the nature and the character of God, even at this time in history. Again, we thank you that we can live a life being uh, uh, led by the spirit and producing the fruit of the spirit because of what you've done with our salvation and with the sanctification in jesus name we pray amen thank you for being here